available at podcast, uh, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, Spotify, among others. E. Michael Jones is my guest. It's an honor to have Dr. Jones back. Dr. Jones is the author of, a, of an extraordinary canon of books, my favorite being Degenerate Moderns. That's where, where I got started with uh, Dr. Jones' books. He's also the editor and publisher of The Culture Wars Online. Um, Michael, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome, Charles. Good to be back. All right. So you're, you have a reissue of The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, which is a very large book um, in which you look at what you describe as Ju uh, Judaism as a revolutionary force. So please, uh, if you will, give me a quick overview on your theory on what Judaism is. Yes. Uh so we, we've had a lot of confusion over the past uh, century, uh, largely because of the creation of the word anti-Semitism. It, 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 it arrived uh, in the consciousness of the world in the 1870s in Germany. Uh, Wilhelm Marr used it in his book. This was a time of uh, real concern about the Jewish question. It just grew enormously toward the end of the 19th century, largely because of Napoleon's emancipation of the Jews in the, as a sequel to the uh, French Revolution. So uh, we're talking about Wilhelm Marr. Wilhelm Marr was a revolutionary, uh, took part in the revolution of 1848, felt betrayed by the Jews uh, uh, in Hamburg. He felt that they betrayed the revolution. Uh, he was not he was not a, a Christian in, in any sense of practicing. He was an anti-Christian. He was a revolutionary. And he's looking for a new way to talk about Jews, about what happened during the revolution of 1848. And he came up with the term anti-Semitism, which is a racial term, uh, because this was a time when we had uh, race, uh, biological determinism had, was ruling the world at this point, largely because of Darwin. This was the beginning of the age of Darwin. Uh, we had uh, the, the death of really any type of uh, abstract philosophical thought took place in 1830, 1831, with the death of Hegel and Goethe. And you also had an era of enormous technological progress. The, the uh, rate at which you could travel over land quadrupled uh, in this period of time in England and uh, Germany because of the railroad. So you have science, the steam engine, uh, revolutionizing manufacturing. Everybody's interested in science. Everybody's lost track of any type of spiritual basis. You have the rise of atheism now, Karl Marx, dialectical materialisms, his perversion of Hegel. And so basically, you have a racial, uh, a biological definition of the Jew. So the Jew is someone who has bad DNA. This is biological determinism. I, I just got into a long uh, debate with Jared Taylor about the whole racial issue, which is all based on biological determinism. Right. This, is a, this is a distortion of the traditional understanding of what the Jew was. And to this day, this word anti-Semitism has been turned into a club to beat people to death with. So before, as Joe Sober used to say, an anti-Semite used to be someone who didn't like Jews. Now it's someone who Jews don't like. That, that's what it is now. So I had to break this logjam 
I, I, I don't espouse any form of racism or any form of biological determinism. I took it back to the traditional understanding of the Jew, which was basically uh, goes back to the time when the Jew, Jesus Christ comes to this earth. And the Jewish people, the Hebrews, uh, have to either decide, is he the Messiah or isn't he? And so uh, some Jews accepted Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and some Jews rejected him. I, I wouldn't say that's not quite accurate. The Jews rejected him. Some Jews accepted him. Now, when I say the Jews, I don't mean every single Jew in Jerusalem at the time, because it never means that. I mean the Jewish people as an organized political entity uh, at that time under the Sanhedrin. They're still an organized political entity, uh, but now they're under... Uh, the, uh, uh, under the control of major Jewish organizations or the leadership council of major Jewish organizations like the ADL, the AJC, all those, all those organizations. So at this point, the Jewish people uh, decided, no, he's not our guy. This is not the Messiah. And they got enraged at him and they killed him. Okay. Now, as I said, this doesn't mean every Jew in Jerusalem uh, shouted, crucify him. The Jewish people did, but not every Jew did. So mm -hmm. obviously his mother was every bit as Jew, had the same DNA as those other people. It, you, can't, you can't resolve this issue through DNA. Everybody had the same DNA at that point. Okay, so she didn't yell crucify him, but the people who did uh, rejected Jesus Christ. Now, they're, they're, when you reject Jesus Christ, you're rejecting the Logos. Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate. Logos is God. Logos is reason. Logos is order. It's a Greek word that uh, was accepted by Christianity when John wrote his gospel in Greek. Okay, now when you reject Logos, you're rejecting the order of the universe. When you reject the order of the universe as created by God, you become a revolutionary. And I'm saying that's been Jewish identity ever since that time. So we're back to a theological... Uh, understanding uh, of the Jew. Okay. Uh, first of all, I think that I, I mean, I agree with you with regard to the scientizing of racism that came from Darwin and his theories, and that that was the main zeitgeist of the late 19th century. That was what uh, the original meaning of anti-Semitism, because it looked at the Jewish people as a race. And, um, you know, you're talking about a more traditional Christian understanding of Judaism, which is as a religion, and it is one that rejected Jesus. And you claim that Judaism as such is anti-Logos. Um, I completely reject that. I think Judaism is the very essence of Logos. And I say that because Judaism and the Jewish people, the children of Israel, were the receivers of Logos at Sinai. We received the Torah through our prophet Moses. And the Torah contains, as the Talmud says, everything, everything is in it, in terms of how we are to, ex you know, human existence, human society, human relations with each other, nations relations with each other. It has the entire blueprint of logic and of reason. And I'm not suggesting that the Greeks didn't have Logos either. I mean, everyone, every nation in a way has degrees of it because you need it to understand reality. But the, the Sinaitic revelation represented revealed divine writ in terms of 
how man is to conduct himself in the world. And the Torah is the, is the receptacle of that, the written nature, nature of that. And that the Torah is the center of Jewish life. It has been from that time until today. Now, as far as Jesus is concerned, uh, you know, I don't get into questions of Christology. I, I used to be a, a host here in Boston where I live. And a regular guest of mine was a Catholic deacon, and we would have various religious figures on, and he once advised me, and I've followed that ever since. He said, don't get into Christology. It's not your business. You're a Jew, and it's not, you know, that's a Christian question. But having said that, I will go so far as to say that Jesus was Logos, not necessarily because he was crucified or not even necessarily because he was the Messiah, but because he was a Jew because he embraced the Torah in its entirety and said so in the Gospels. Not one jot or tittle of the Torah will be changed. The Torah is forever. The covenant is forever between man, the Jewish people, particularly as a special mission, and, and God. So in a sense, Christianity is Judaism in many ways. And I think that Christianity does have logos to the extent that it is conscious of its Jewish heritage, which is the laws of Moses. Right. Let's say you. Yes, yes. Uh, look, if the Jews remain faithful to the Torah, we wouldn't be having this discussion right now. Okay. Uh, the gospel makes it clear. Uh, Jesus says uh, the, the, the Jews had succumbed to racism at that time. They said that we are the, we are the seed of Abraham. We're special. We have special DNA. And Jesus Christ rejected that. And he said, if you were a children, child of Moses, you would accept me. So the problem here is not the Torah. Of course, the Torah is the word of God. Of course, it, there is logos in the Torah. This is logos tailored to the Jewish people, specifically for the Jewish people in the law. Uh, the Greeks came by logos, a different, a different method. Christianity brought about a synthesis of Greek and Hebrew traditions, okay? The problem mm -hmm. here is when they rejected Jesus Christ, they rejected the Torah, they rejected Moses, and they rejected Abraham as well. And what happened is that they, the revolutionary spirit seized control of the Jewish people, and they rose up in rebellion against Rome. And at that point, the temple was destroyed. And at that point, the Jewish people had no no priesthood, no sacrifice, and no temple, and they could not fulfill the law of Moses, couldn't do it anymore. And at that point, the, there was a perceptive rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who understood which direction the wind was blowing. He got himself smuggled out of uh, Jerusalem, went to Titus, said, I'm a, I'm a friend of Rome, do me a favor, I want to start a school. And they started the, the school at Yavna. And at that point, you have the new Judaism. This is the Talmudic Judaism. And the Talmud is the antithesis of the Torah. Now, I know we're going to disagree on that. But I mean, basically, the Talmud is a new religion. You can't, the Jews cannot fulfill the old religion. And now they have a basically a debating society known as the shul or, or the synagogue. And that's what it is. It was codified. Uh, centuries later, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, uh, 600, uh, the Palestinian Talmud uh, after that. And mm -hmm. so what you have is a religion that is newer than Christianity, that is a, a repudiation 
of the Torah. It's not a completion of the Torah. It's a repudiation of the Torah. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Torah. He said that. That's what we believe as Christians. We believe we are the children of Moses because we accepted Jesus Christ. The uh, uh, rabbinic Judaism precedes the, uh, the Romans by many, many centuries. It goes actually back to the Babylonian exile. And that's when you had the beginning of the, um, of the synagogue, of the shul. And uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, wrote about this in that he points out, and I think that this is a stream of belief within Judaism that goes all the way back, that, that the primary belief of Judaism, the primary mission of Judaism is to know God. And secondly, and that is something that exists in space and in time, really more than space. It's something that is eternal. Secondly, it is the belief in the Torah of Sinai and all of the laws and regulations and, and ordinances that exist in that. That is the Logos. Thirdly, it is a place to worship, a temple. And the temple is not the first thing. The temple comes in because when Moses was on Sinai, which was the pinnacle of spirituality, for all of mankind and for Judaism, I mean, the ultimate, the, the moment when God was revealing the, the Decalogue, at the foot of the mountain, you had Jew, the children of Israel falling into complete sin with the golden calf and with uh, Aaron, the priest, I mean, and, and all of the, the sinful practices around that. And so Moses realized that man was not yet ready to embark on this kind of a spiritual mission and the, the children of Israel so they needed to have a place to worship, like a physical place. But, but the point is that that was not the, the core belief. That was not essential. It was put in place as a way to understand the greater questions, which was that we are to know God and that we are to act as a kind of as a, a priestly sect for all of mankind. Now, obviously, the history of the children of Israel from that moment right up till today has been an internal struggle between, you know, saintliness and sin. And there's terrible sin going on. I mean, in those days, it was expressed as an idol worship. Today, it's a whole different subject, and I've gotten into this. But the mission itself, in a sense, reflects the, the struggle in all of mankind. It's the same struggle exists in Christianity. I mean, we need to get our house in order in order to get to know God and to become aware of our, of our spiritual mission. At the same time, I would suggest that Christian, Christian houses need to get in order as well. The Catholic house needs to get in order. I mean, I would hope that you'd focus on some of the goings on within Catholicism and with some of the Catholic leaders who um, I would say might have averred from the, uh, the message, not only of, of, of Moses, but of, of the Catholic church. And, and in a sense, I would suggest that you and I are on the same side in that regard. I mean, I you know, view myself very imperfectly, and I'm certainly no rabbi, and I'm no saint at all, but as someone who's trying to look at the Jewish house and try to you know, make corrections and try to point out where it's gone awry, and I think you might be doing the same thing in the Catholic Church. Well, if you're going to talk about individuals, yeah, we have sinful individuals all across the board. Right. But we're not we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about an institution. We're talking about is can can the Jew fulfill his covenant? Yes. He can't. He can't. 
You can't because you, don't, you can't fulfill the Mosaic covenant because you need a temple, a priesthood, and a sacrifice to do that. And you don't have it anymore. So the question is, well, then you can generalize from that. You can generalize from that as Heschel did and try to uh, universalize it. But the question is, uh, is can, can the Jew be saved by following his covenant? Now, this is a real controversial issue in the Catholic Church. If you want to talk about the Catholic Church, I think that one of the greatest disasters to hit the Catholic Church, okay, it's analogous to the destruction of the temple. I'm going to go way out on a limb here. Analogous to the destruction of the temple has been Catholic-Jewish dialogue. It has been an unmitigated disaster for the Catholic Church. Over the past, it began in 1965 after uh, the Vatican Council entered and they uh, issued uh, Nostra Aetate. And during that time, the Jews have simply, uh, they have just eaten the lunch of the Catholic Church because largely of the enormous political power that they have achieved over this period of time, largely through the media. The, the, the control of the media has led to enormous power, even more power right now with the new media. And so uh, as a result, uh, you have a situation where uh, the Pope, <laughs> this just happened a, a week ago, the Pope is trying to preach to the faithful on quoting the epistle to the Galatians, and suddenly the rabbis get upset. And the rabbis tell the Pope, no, you can't do that because St. Paul said the law cannot save you anymore. Well, we don't, wait, wait a minute. We don't believe that. The rabbis don't believe that. I know they don't believe that. That's why they're rabbis. But the fact that the rabbi now feels that he has veto power over the church shows you the catastrophic situation that the church is in right now. Well, look, I mean, I agree with you. Rabbis should not have any say in what's going on in the church. I mean, the church, nor should the church have any say in what's going on in the rabbinate. I mean, these we're talking about two separate faiths and that they're not compatible. That's why they're separate. Right. Having said that, I think you're scapegoating the Jewish people for Catholic problems. I mean, Catholicism has its own house to deal with, going back to the Knights Templar, going back to excesses of the Jesuits and some of their clandestine activities around the world. You're right up till today. Um, you know, th this is, uh, I mean, and I'm not trying to point a finger because I want to see the Catholic no, Church fly no. right. I, I look, Charles, the, in the world. Charles, you, you, you have nowhere near, you've, you've never said as many bad things about the Catholic Church as I have. For 40 years, I have been bitching and moaning about the state of the Catholic Church. I'm well aware of the Catholic, of that. It's, it's a kind we're in a catastrophic situation. I'm trying to say, it's Jewish influence that has led to this catastrophe in the Catholic Church. First of all, the idea that that uh, Jews, uh, that somehow the Jews are our elder brothers, and that we're in some type of uh, uh, um, some type of alliance, this is preposterous. Now, again, I'm I, I have nothing, no problem dealing with individual Jews. I mean, we're talking, okay, we this is Catholic Jewish dialogue, but the notion that the Catholic Church and the Jews as this organized entity, major Jewish organizations all the way back to the Sanhedrin, that they are somehow uh, uh, in alignment is preposterous. This has been the axis of human history. 
This conflict is the axis of human history because it's the axis of Logos versus anti-Logos. And again, to be clear, what I mean by anti-Logos is the Talmud, not the Torah. Well, first of all, I mean, I think that there are areas of interest between Catholics and Jews going all the way back. I mean, Pope Gregory consulted with the rabbi in Baghdad. I mean, when he codified the calendar to make sure that it was in line with the Jewish understanding of the, of the days. And I think that Jews have always been involved and Catholics have been involved. But we, I think you're right to say that Jews should have no say over Catholic doctrine. Um, and I think if they if they do, then that's that's a Catholic problem. That Catholic, is. You're, you're absolutely right. It's yeah. a Catholic problem. That's that instance of Galatians is just one example. Jews have virtual veto power over who gets named a saint today. Well, that's well, craziness. That, so they I know it is. Say, that's crazy. That's yeah, but you can't right. blame the Jews for that. I mean, that's a Catholic problem. Catholics need to be no, more Catholic. The that's Pope true. needs to be more Catholic. He needs to say, this is what we believe in. It's not because it's anti-Jewish or anti-anyone else, but it's because of who we are. I mean, the same thing with Judaism, by the way. We are who we are, not because we're anti-Christian, which is something I've heard you say. I think... I think I think Jews are anti-Christian. I think the Talmud, no. the Torah is the word of God. The Talmud is an anti-Christian tract whose purpose is to keep Jews from converting to to uh, Christianity. I think that's they're two they're two completely different documents. Okay, I think that there is a part of the Talmud which is trying to preserve Judaism in diaspora and keep Jews as Jews in, in the mission. And to that degree, it's been incredibly successful. I want to talk a little bit, because I've had some thinking on this, about some of the things that are in the, particularly the Gospel of John, but in the New Testament, uh, we think regarding Jews, and, and, and a lot of these things are attributed to Jesus himself, as having stated, and that uh, if you look at them on the surface, they look like they're anti-Jewish. I don't think so. I mean, I've been thinking about this. Jesus, regardless, not to get into a question of Christology, but as a Jew and as a Jewish leader, and I would even argue as a prophet, Jesus was acting in the tradition of prophets going all the way back to Moses. And certainly, if you look at the work of Jeremiah in particular and other prophets, they say scathing things about the Jewish, their own people. They say scathing things about their leadership, that they have fallen into sin, that they're idol worshipers, that they're going to bring calamity on themselves, that they need to get right with God. They need to, you know, come back to the spiritual mission. And I think that Jesus's comments, if he made them, and I, I'm going to run under the assumption he did, because that's what the New Testament says. He had, they have to be viewed in that context. He was a Jew talking to the Jewish people and saying, you are sinners, you are this, you are that, you are part of the synagogue of Satan, as a way to try to, you know, have them fulfill the covenant that he wanted to, he was acting like the prophet Jeremiah, who was hated in his day, by the way. And, you know, because nobody wants to be told that they're sinners, nobody, it's not a popular thing to do, you're not going to be, you know, put on the cover of Time magazine for this, right? I mean, you're going to be treated like you and I are treated. But, but the thing is that I think that those comments need to be seen in that context. They were comments by a Jewish leader to the Jewish people. The whole thing was a Jewish affair. And in that sense, we ought to continue that, that idea when we criticize our own respective faiths and our own respective communities. Yeah, 
I agree with you. He was he, he was uh, in the line of the prophets. They thought he was a prophet. They thought he was John the Baptist for a while. Okay. And I think this is a way of dealing with a crucial issue right now. So the, the, the issue of anti-Semitism comes up. Once that comes up, you're dead. Okay, you, you, you're guilty, it's the, your judge, jury, execution, you've been found guilty without a trial, okay? So we need to back away from that term because it goes nowhere. So I would propose a different way of dealing with this, which you just uh, adverted to, namely, is it a sin to criticize Jews? Is it a sin to criticize Jews? And I would pose this to my own bishop because he wrote something on anti-Semitism that went absolutely nowhere. So I'm a Catholic. He's my spiritual leader. I would have to come back and I say, look, is it a sin to criticize Jews? Yes or no? No. I mean, it's not a crime to criticize, criticize Jews. And, and now, if you ask me, if you ask me, are you an anti-Semite? I would say no, because of all the reasons we discussed at the beginning of our discussion today. OK, mm -hmm. but if you ask me, do you criticize Jews? I would say, yes, I do. So don't I. Uh, and, you know, and, I, uh, the, the point the point is, as you mentioned, Jesus Christ also criticized Jews. Moses criticized Jews. That's right. That's does that right. make Moses does that make Moses an anti-Semite? No, I mean, look, your, your, your point is, is right in that uh, we, we can and we have to criticize Jews as for their actions. I think that there's a difference between that and criticizing the Jewish covenant and saying that the Jewish covenant itself is wrong. Um, I see that, you know, we, we are in a constant process of, of trying to get back to the covenant, get back to knowing God and exposing uh, our fellow Jews who who are have fallen away from that and who actually are antithetical to it, and I think you're right. also right. now there is there is a possibility for collaboration. Now I want to go back to St. Louis. Okay, mm -hmm. St. Louis. A year ago, there's a big battle over the statue of St. Louis, run by a guy who calls a Muslim. It's racial. He's calling the Catholics white supremacists and so on and so forth. Right. I'm in co contact with one of my friends down in St. Louis. He gets a call from a Jew He's because I said, look, it's not Umar Lee. It's Rabbi Susan Talva. She's running the whole operation from behind the scene. We have to get to the heart of this matter. It's a Catholic Jewish battle. It's not a Jew, uh, black, white battle. So the guy comes on, talks to my friend. He says, this Rabbi Susan Talva, she's a witch. She's a sorceress. She's this is crazy. The Jews don't want that statue taken down. She's crazy. So at that point, I said, he's telling me this. I said, well, call the guy back and say, look, I think we, I, th I agree with you. Let's have a united front here to preserve. We as citizens of St. Louis want that statue there. It's not what he says it is. Let's issue a, a joint statement. Well, no, he's not going to do that. And there you see the whole thing breaks down because there's this kind of Jewish solidarity where they talk to you in private. It's like Nicodemus comes to Jesus Christ at, at night out of fear of the Jews. It's the same thing happening today. You know, we got people we talk to. Yeah, I understand that. But there's not when it comes to a group, let's say we're going to merge a group of concerned citizens of St. Louis, both Jew and Catholic. It doesn't work. That's where it breaks down. Well, first of all, I mean, I think that um, you are, you've pointed this out, I've pointed this out, that 
Judaism, I mean, besides the fact that I think it's been infiltrated by the left, and we're talking about people who are socialists today, and this goes back to the false Messiah, Shabtes V. And I've, I've written about this. I don't want to go too far into that. But I will say that in today's definition of anti-Semitism, you're right. It's people who are pro-life on, on the question of abortion. It's people who oppose you know, transgenderism and gay marriage. It's people who are, don't take a particular liberal position can be called anti-Semitic. And that's ridiculous and wrong. That is the result of a, um, a perversion, frankly, of the Jewish body. I mean, and it goes back to the days when we were infiltrated by this false messiah. I document that's a whole different subject. The Rabbi Marvin, the late Rabbi Marvin Antelman wrote an excellent book on this called To Eliminate the Opiate. And um, it's, it's, we do are up to today where we have this corruption where people can throw that word around. They can also throw the word racist around if you don't agree with them. Right. Or, you know, any of these other words and, it, and they can destroy your career. You can be canceled. I mean, this is part of the cancel culture. You know, you make a con, you know, if they don't like you, if they like you and you're on the right side, that stuff gets swept under the rug. And, and, and I, look, I agree with, with that, with you on that. And that also, I think Jews tend to be a little bit clannish in that we feel that we are being attacked. And, and it, you know, it's the same way they work the black community. You know, you feel like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, this person's a racist because they're opposed to affirmative action. Everybody mobilizes and they vote against someone. And they use that kind of emotional fear and that, that sense of victimology and persecution. And that, that has a very deep psychological effect on Judaism and on Jews. And you know, it, it's been enhanced by critical theory, which is a sociological invention, mainly by liberal Jews, I will admit. Right, Noel Ignatieff. And, yeah, yeah, and that, that comes out of the Frankfurt School where you have a reinvention of communism in, in a social sense. And you know, it, it's, a, it's a very major corrupt problem. It also has corrupted Catholics. The Catholic Church, I think, is a little bit more immune to it because you have this incredible hierarchy and you've got a Pope and you've got political, you know, you've got nations and you've got, you know, armies and you've got, you know, you've got infrastructure that goes all over the world. And so it's a little more difficult for this conspiracy. And I mean that term broadly. I don't mean it's a bunch of people sitting in a smoke filled room. I mean, it's a, it's a conspiracy of the mind that it's a little more difficult for that to permeate the Catholic church than it is to permeate Judaism and to permeate certain Protestant sects right. who don't have that kind of infrastructure. Right, right. The, the, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Christian Zionism is a serious problem, uh, which pretty much will not work in the Catholic Church. It's not going to work. It's not a Christian ideology. It comes from the that, Schofield Bible. Why? Well, putting aside the Schofield Bible, why aren't Catholics, I mean, I think they are, but I mean, in your version pro-Zionist. I mean, to me, it seems like that's a fulfillment of the Torah. Well, largely because, because a lot of the people in Palestine were Christians and, and they, they were dispossessed. Well, in Israel are Christians too. I mean, but Christians didn't have political power there. The Turks controlled it. I mean, it's not, you know, that doesn't seem like a the Turks were more lenient. The Turks were more lenient in terms of uh, tolerating minorities than the Zionists are. That's the problem. I don't think that's true. Um, and, and I mean, I, I think that Israel represents 
Logos, I mean, in my opinion, it's certainly not perfect by any means. Yeah. And it's a country that's under siege and it has genocidal enemies. But it's something that represents what I would think Christians would support, a return to the Torah. You know, the Jewish people are not, they don't appear to be that religious, but in reality, they are, I mean, in the broad sense. And again, I'm not saying it's some utopia over, over there, hardly. I've been there many times. But, you know, it does represent a movement toward possibly the rebuilding of the temple, possibly the coming of the. I agree with that. I think that that's eventually what's going to happen. They're going to rebuild the temple and that will be bad news for the entire human race. Uh, so, but, uh, but uh, depends on how that's done. I mean, the, look, I, and I'm not advocating it be done tomorrow. I mean, I hope it's done with consultation with, with a council of both Jewish and, and Muslim leaders getting together and forming a group that might deliberate on how to do this over a hundred years. It's not something. Well, if, if they do, I recommend reading the chapter on Julian the Apostate. Uh, I think that before they start building the temple, they should read the chapter on Julian the Apostate and what happened at that point in history when they tried to rebuild the temple. Uh, uh, good, it was, good point. And I did read that. And I don't think the Jewish people at that time were ready for, for that. That's why I'm bringing up the fact that this is something that has to be done carefully over, over like a century. It's not something that could be done tomorrow. I don't think the Jewish people and Israel and the rest of the world is ready for that. I think that we should support it, though, on a spiritual level. Now, Mike, I want to ask you about the reissue of your book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. You have new chapters in there. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So one, so I'm, 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 I wrote this book. It came out in 2009. And when you write it, you think, did that, was that a category of reality? Or was that a category of the mind? You know, I mean, people, uh, oh, it's just your obsession. You're obsessed with the Jews. You all talk, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that. So I'm just minding my own business here. And um, I get a call, a guy from Armenia. He wants me to go to Armenia and talk to the patriarch there. Okay, uh, so what do you know? What do I know about Armenia? I basically know that my father used to tell me to eat everything on my plate and think about the starving Armenians. It's the only thing I knew about Armenians, I knew that they were starving. I didn't know what that meant. Well, it was he was referring to the Armenian genocide, and if you look into it, it's basically a stalemate. Okay, it's a stalemate because. The Armenians said the Turks tried to exterminate the Armenian people. The Turks, on the other hand, say, look, the, the Armenians were collaborating with the Russians at the height of World War One. They uh, the Russian army invaded on the east. The Armenians went over to their side. This was a, a threat to the entire nation. So we had to remove them from the Eastern Front and we marched them off. And sorry, uh, when you march them through Syria, through the desert, then no water. They're going to die. But that wasn't intentional. That's a stalemate. But if you look into it, I started to look into it, and suddenly the whole Jewish revolutionary spirit emerged, like before my eyes. I wasn't even looking for it. And it turns out that what did the Dashnaks and the Hunchaks, who were the Armenian uh, nationalists or terrorists, if you want to have them, what did they have in common with the young Turks? Well, it was the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Now, where did they pick that up? 
They picked it up in Russia. They were going to these Russian universities at the same time that Lenin's brother is the head of Narodnyavolia, the the uh, the the uh, the Jewish terrorist organization. Okay, so suddenly you realize what happened here is that the Armenian nationalism got weaponized by its contact with the Jewish revolutionary spirit with Narodnyavolia, and that was a catastrophe for the Armenian people. Because once you rise up in that kind of revolutionary gestalt, they, that was a terrorist organization, okay? There's no question about it. Salo Baron, all of the historians talk about it as the beginning of terrorism in Russia. The attempt to assassinate the czar was their operation. That's how Lenin's older brother ended up dangling from a rope. He was executed because of that role. And the Hunchaks, the Armenians, because of their exposure to it, became terrorists. And once you become a terrorist, you're going to antagonize the host population. And that was a contributing factor to the Armenian genocide. Now, that is why I included that chapter in the new uh, version of the Jewish revolutionary spirit, because once again, you had a situation that you couldn't understand on the surface. You had to go deeper. And when you got deeper, you saw, well, the Young Turks, that was Salonika, that was the Donma, that was Jewish influence all the way from Shabbatai Zivi. And you had the Jewish influence on the other side. And when these two, this immovable object and this irresistible force come together, you're going to have conflict and people are going to die. And that's what happened. So I felt vindicated because this thesis is a category of reality. It's a, it's a description of something that exists in human history. It's a something that you, without which you cannot understand human history. Um, Michael, look, I did some preliminary research on this because I've heard you mention this before, and I'm not claiming that I, I did deep research on it, but I did enough research on it to contend that the Norad Naravoya was not a Jewish group. It was a group made up of disgruntled Russian aristocrats. It was actually anti-Semitic, and it was founded by Michael Bakunin, who was an anti-Semite and who attacked Jewish bankers and a lot of the cliches. And that it was only later that they let in Jews after they had become communists. It was inspired originally by Italian communists who I assume had some Catholic roots, um, people like Bruno and others, and that it had no connection to speak of to Judaism. I mean, I'm sorry to disagree with you, but I just think that um, this, this isn't it. You know, it's it, it, the yes, there were a lot of Jews who were attracted to Bolshevism. There's no question about that. It is one of the stains on Jewish history, in my opinion, in the same way that there were a lot of Catholics who were attracted to Nazism. It, it was a diversion. It was an anti-Christian and anti-Jewish movement. Eventually, the Jews, of course, paid a price in Russia for that because under Stalin, they were they were executed and, and, and exiled. Um, now, I, well, I, again, I, I have to disagree with you. Uh, if you're talking about Cherny Peridel, the Black Path, if you're talking about that, that was a broad-based uh, back-to-the-land movement that wanted reform in Russia. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, so how are you going to do that? Back to the land? Well, you go back to the peasants and you start talking about, I don't know, the French Revolution, something like that. 
And uh, what happened is that yeah, there were Jews. Jews were natural are always going to be drawn to these movements because of because they're Jews. Some because uh, and 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 they were drawn to it, and they realized, okay, the Jews. They're also the head of the anti-communist movement too. I mean, I know we can talk. We can talk yeah. about that too. Okay, okay. but I'm talking. I want to just talk about this part. Okay, sure. uh, so the Jew goes to the village, and he's obviously a Jew. He's obviously an alien. He's trying to preach something that sounds revolutionary. So they go to the cops and it goes nowhere. Okay. At this point, the Jews are starting to feel frustrated and they break away from that original back to the land movement and they create Nardaniavolia, which is a terrorist organization. I'm sorry, There's but I don't no think way. your history on that is right. I think okay. It was All right. Then, then we are going to we are going to have to Yeah, uh, I have to disagree. Okay. We're going to, and all I'm trying all I'm going to say is I would ask you to read those chapters in the Jewish okay. revolutionary spirit and see if I made my case because well, I'm I, saying I would they broke off these the, the history the, of that group. It's not Jewish. These the Jews were the first people to bring dynamite into the into Russia. They were they were they had been cut off from the Polish uh, Polish. Paradisus Judeorum with the partition of Poland. They are now all along the western border of Russia at a time when revolutionary ideology is seeping in from the west. This is it's also it's it's in uh, social media. And, and it influenced a lot of Jews. There were also a lot of Jews who were very so. If, if you're talking about the if you're talking about the pale of the settlement at this time, which is what we're talking about here, there is ferment. The ideas of the Enlightenment are percolating through the shtetl, okay, which is trying to keep those ideas out, but you can't with the younger generation. And the two, uh, the two ideologies that emerge out of this ferment are Zionism on the one hand, which is Jewish nationalism, and Marxism, socialism, whatever you want to call it, which is Jewish internationalism, uh, epitomized by that. Trotsky. No, I reject that communism, communism, a lot of them went into communism, but communism goes back to um, the foundation of the Illuminati, which, are, by the way, was more of a Catholic organization headed by a former Jesuit uh, professor by the name of Adam Weishaupt. Um, yes, I mentioned know. that in my book, okay. uh, uh, I mean, Libido Dominandi. Well, you're, you're just, yes, you're just flying in the face of reality if you say that Naradnaya wasn't a predominantly Jewish that. organization. It might have become more Jewish, but it, it didn't start out that way. And the Jews who got into it were communists. I'm not saying they weren't still Jewish, but they were bad Jews. They, were, they rejected the Torah. They would reject, they didn't call themselves Jews any longer. They had rejected God. Look, this is a spiritual struggle, and you had both Jews and non-Jews get involved in it. I think more Jews did get involved than should have, and that's again a stain on Jewish history. Uh, you know, it has a look. It has a lot to do with the. I mean, this is my opinion here, but when you take a look at Jewish communities in Europe and around the world historically, they contributed enormously to the cultures where they existed in areas of the arts, of business, of medicine, of, uh, you know, any, any almost okay. any- Okay, can, can, can we contextualize that? Okay, before the, uh, the German Enlightenment, before people like Moses Mendelssohn, the Jews were completely cut off from any developments in European culture. The only contribution the I Jews know. made 
to, to European culture was usury. The whole view And by uh, the way, the user, you, that, that's also untrue as well in that the main banking families were not Jewish. They were the Fugers who were Catholic. And the, it was the Venetians, the merchants who, and the Hanasetic League in, in, uh, in the Baltics. And, invented, and the Medici, you're right. The, yeah, they the, invented the, banking. The, and they invented uh, the use of insurance and checks and credit and all of the rest. You know, it's kind of a, a myth. And I'm not saying there weren't Jewish families that got into the business of banking later on, like the Rothschilds and the Warburgs, but this, you know, this is another one of these sort of, I, I would argue, canards. But, the, but my Canard. point is, my, look, oh, my, have you been reading the ADL's website? You're using ADL oh. words now. You're no, using ADL not. words. Canard not. is an ADL I, word. Fine. I'm not a fan of the ADL. I've criticized them to my uh, detriment, by the way. Okay. All Good. right. But, but, but my point regarding that is that if you look at any segment in society, the Jews advance the society. I personally believe that the Jews also advanced uh, the moral Christian backbone of Europe because they were Jews. And I think otherwise Christianity might have veered more in the direction of paganism, frankly. That's an opinion. But I also would point out that at that same time, this heightened level of success and honoring of family and education and accomplishment, there's a dark side to it. And that is that Jews have been at the forefront of some of the most evil things. They're using that same energy and that same enlightened ability in a, in a bad way. And I, I, I certainly acknowledge that. It's uh, it, my, my, my overall point is that when they do so, they are backing away from the, the belief in God. They are engaging in the modern form of idol worship. They are, are, are betraying the faith. Yes, that's okay. true. That's true. But I'm saying it's part of the inheritance of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. We've, we've been down this road before. We have. By the way, we've the French because... Revolution had nothing to do with Jews. Nothing. I mean, there might have been a Jew or two involved in it, but it was not a Jewish thing. I want to ask you, I mean, you seem to have some, your definition of revolution, you know, I think that there are times when revolution is a positive thing, and I would point to the American Revolution. You know, it was an establishment of rights for the citizens and an establishment of sovereignty. And I know that you've referred to the American Revolution as a Jewish revolution. And for that, no, wait, I say, no, no, I'm, I'm no, no, never said that. Oh, never okay. said that. Okay, I okay. thought you. Were you no, never said it. Because it was Protestant, which you also view as revolutionary. I'm saying that there was, uh, if you talk about the legacy of Jewish thought, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, uh, you have to take it back to the Puritans in England. Okay, okay. that was a def that, There's no question that was a revolution. You're not questioning that but as a revolution. It, why do you call that Jewish, though? Because Puritans were Judaizers. They were Christians right. who acted like Jews. How so? Uh, <laughs> I'm, <sorry. laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss. This, this is, this is something that's so All right, we don't, we don't have to in get the history in. of ideas. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me just give you one instance. There was an absolute, every lunatic in England came out of the woodwork at the time of the Puritan revolution. And one of these lunatics was a man by the name of praise God bare bones. 
His real name, he was a French uh, Huguenot extraction. His name was Barbon. His son took back that name, uh, called himself Nicholas Barbon, but this is Praise God Bare Bones. And what is Praise God Bare Bones' great mission in life? He wants to make Hebrew the official language of England. This is the type of Judaizing madness that took place during this revolutionary period. That's just one instance. Want to get back to the Bible. Look, uh, I see. Well, wait a minute. No, that's not what's going on here. Okay. This is it, the church never repudiated. All right. First of all, the Catholic Church never repudiated the Old Testament. Yeah, right. They, they called it Marcionism. If you rejected the Old Testament, you were a Marcionite, you were a heretic. The church yes. never rejected the Old Testament. It is always incorporated. This guy is turning the Bible into some revolutionary ideology, and the way he does it is by attaching it to the Old Testament, to Judaism. So again, Look, let me, another my... wait a minute, wait a minute, another example. John Milton, he was a Puritan. Okay, his name was on the list of uh, regicides. Okay, John's wife runs out on him. He's unhappy. So he wants to have get a divorce. Well, wait a minute. The New Testament, Jesus Christ said you're not allowed to get a divorce. So mm -hmm. what does he do? He goes back to Moses. This is the, exactly the Judaizing spirit that took over England. And then it was totally repudiated in England uh, after the death of Cromwell. But it took roots here in America. And that became the basis of the revolutionary spirit in America all the uh, if you're talking about someone like John Brown, for example, let's go up to the Civil War. John mm -hmm. Brown was an Old Testament Judaizer in the Puritan mode. That's always existed here in this country. Look, Mike, I, I see maybe I, I it's been a, a little while since I read your book, but I did read it carefully, and I seem to remember being aware. And I should have antenated when I read, but I didn't. I just read it straight through. Um, there seemed to have been a contradiction between your definition of Judaizer in that you referred to the uh, Bohemian movement of Jan Hus as a Judaizing movement because they wanted to go back to the strict interpretation of the Old Testament, of the Torah, uh, by the letter. And by the way, the Catholic Church uh, burned him at the stake along with 250 of his followers. Um, and at the same time, you also point out that John Calvin was a Judaizer because he embraced Talmudic layers of law, which is a contradiction because Judaism is not fundamental. We don't, you know, we don't go with the literal language of the Torah on the surface at all. We are, the Talmud actually is a process that continues in the form of responsa in that it examines the Torah, plums it for meaning, applies it to practical life and looks at it in ways that, that, that apply. It's not literal, never was literal. And it's certainly the whole rabbinic movement was, was anti that. In fact, there was a schism in Judaism over this. The Karite movement in the seventh century broke away from Judaism because they became like literal. They became like what you're talking about here. They started, they wouldn't even turn a to, you know, turn a candle on Shabbos because, you know, every, they sit in the darkness. I mean, and they, they still exist, by the way, it's a very tiny sect. But, but the idea is that, you know, which is it? Which is the Judaizing influence? We're talking, we're talking about two different things here. 
you're talking about Jews and their trying struggle to come up with some type of modus vivendi after the destruction of the temple. I'm talking about Christians. In order to be a Judaizer, you have to be a Christian. Okay, right. this is a Christian appropriation. Yeah, but which of, Christian is I'm, a Judaizer? The one who goes with the fundamental view of the Torah or the one who, who embraces? Doesn't the, matter. The it doesn't matter. They pick and choose whatever they Milton. I, I just I gave, I gave you. That's an internal Christian question. I mean, it's nothing to do with Judaism. Judaism is rabbinic. I'm, I'm saying that there's this thing called the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and it jumps from the Jews to the Christians. And the Christians, there are certain, Protestantism, for example, has all, the Achilles heel of Protestantism has always been Judaizing. They always want to go but back to the Old the Testament. They the Judaizers. <clears throat> Who do we believe? I mean, which, <laughs> well, which how, <laughs> what am I supposed to say? And there's nothing, there's nothing. not an argument that I'm, I don't have a, 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 a horse in that race, you know what I mean? Right. And I don't either, because I'm not a Protestant. But I mean, the Achilles heel of Protestantism is Judaizing. If you take the Bible out of the church, you've got a revolutionary manifesto. That's what it is. And the beginning of the revolutionary manifesto is the Old Testament. And every single Milton is quoting one passage after another from the Old Testament because he's weaponizing the Old Testament right. in order to create a revolutionary movement. That's what Judaizing is. Mike, I would say the same thing is true about taking the Torah out of the synagogue in the hands of the rabbis and using it as a revolutionary document. To That's called the Talmud. It. That's called the no, Talmud. The Talmud is rabbinic. I'm talking about people who might... The Talmud is the weaponization of the Torah. The Talmud is commentary on the Torah. The, and its practical use of the Torah, it's uh, it's not like the, like bl the blasphemies uh, where Jesus Christ is in hell, buried up to his neck and burning excrement. This is an ideological weaponization. No, there were great debates over whether that was a reference to Jesus. That passage was written by Onkelos, who was a Roman and a pagan and a witch before he became a Jew. He converted yeah. to Judaism. And he was just this, this happened also in the disputation of Tortosa, well, where, where the former rabbis say, here, what about this passage? And the rabbi says, oh, that's a different Jesus. No, the rabbi at Tortosa said, oh, you know, everybody named Jesus is not necessarily right. Jesus, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, any more than everyone named Louis is king of France. Right. You know, he invented Jewish humor in that way. But the point and you point that out. The thing is that Onkelos was also said that Titus was burning up to excrement. I mean, he was talking about practices in Roman pagan religion there. You know, I mean, this is something that's disputed. We don't know. It could have been. I don't think so. It didn't sound like something that, th that the Talmud would say. Now, that's not to say there weren't some terrible things written about Jesus. I mean, the, the, the book of Jesus, Toledo uh, Jeshu, which is not Talmud, which was a popular book at that time, said some terrible things about Jesus. I'm not, look, that's out there. And we, early Christian ministers like, like St. John Chrysostom said some terrible things about Jews. I mean, there, right. was a, there was a civil war going on between the two in the that's early right. century. You're absolutely so you have right. have to look at it in that context. I'm trying to, okay. I'm trying to. But I'm saying that once, once the Reformation broke with the church, you had a new organizing principle and the new organizing principle became Judaism. It became uh, a, a, a way of 
assigning legitimacy to a minister who had no legitimacy whatsoever. I'm talking about the Protestant minister who had broken with apostolic succession. He had no legitimacy. And so as a result, you need some type of thing that will give him that. And that's why they all gravitated. The Protestants tended to gravitate toward uh, Judaizing. That's became Judaizers gravitated toward the uh, Judaism as the justification for their particular religion. Okay. How is that revolutionary? I mean, was Martin Luther, I mean, what was, was Martin Luther was not a Judaizer. Okay. Let's make that perfectly clear. He was not a Judaizer. And what about like Methodism and, and the, the Wesley <clears throat> brothers and uh, right. baptism? I mean, these don't seem to be revolutionary faiths <clears throat> in my mind. And a baptism, and a baptism, and a baptism was the cutting that was edge. A, that was an extreme version. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're asking me. Anabaptism was the cutting edge of revolution in Europe in the 16th century. It was superseded by Calvinism. But at that moment in Münster, this is the cutting edge of revolution. And he, uh, uh, Bokelzun, the tailor king of uh, Münster, saw himself as an Old Testament figure, and that justified polygamy in his mind. Look, at I mean, again, we're talking, I think that we're in agreement that people who take the Torah out of the church or out of the synagogue and use it as a radical document can justify all sorts of things. I mean, Fidel Castro says that Jesus was a communist, he told Pope John Paul II. You know, so if you take, you know, you, you take doctrine and you start to transform it to, to your way of thinking, you can make it anything you want. Right. That's why you and, that, and I'm saying the Reformation opened the door to that. And uh, I'm, I'm not in agreement. The Reformation was a looting operation. I've said that many times. The point is the book is called The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. This is a spirit that can jump from one group to another. And it, throughout human history, it has jumped. To say that Puritans were not Judaizers, it flies in the face of reality. I would argue that there is a revolutionary spirit as you define it, and it's not the good revolutionary spirit, which would be America, but it would be the communistic and, and fascistic revolutionary spirit, which is to create a utopia on earth and use physical force against others to accomplish that. It has nothing to do with Judaism. It's something well, that exists. And, and I think we've gone over this. I mean, it, it's movements like the Illuminati, like the French Revolution, like Jewish movements as well, that exist as an anti-God movement. It is trying to replace God. It's the sin of the Garden of Eden. It's saying that man is God. Whitaker Chambers, the great, you know, the communist American who became Christian and who uh, testified against the communists in the FDR administration, his book, Witness, he talks about this, brilliant book, one of my favorites. He says that it's a struggle between God and man, and that communism is the world's second oldest religion. It happened at the Garden of Eden when, when Adam and Eve rejected, you know, when they took partook of the forbidden fruit and, and, and rejected what God had told them, they were trying to be like God. They were trying to know all things. They were trying to overthrow God in heaven and create an earthly utopia. That is the original sin. That is the, the second, you know, and that's what we've been dealing with every generation since. It's a right. I tried of God. I'm trying to contextualize this historically. 
So you can't globalize from communism because that was a one historical manifestation of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. It's the end of the 19th century. It had a 70 year run in Russia. It's over now. It's an obsolete form of revolutionary movement. And now we every, have every bit as much as Anabaptism is an obsolete revolutionary movement or Freemasonry is an obsolete revolutionary movement. So you can't globalize from what you can't mistake the part for the whole. That's what I'm saying. Okay. And and, and my only objection here is that <clears throat> we're talking about a movement that is both anti-Jewish and anti-Christian because it's anti-God, because it's anti-reality, it's anti-logos. It's anti- You're talking about Marxism now? All of it. Every, well, every Marx, Marx, Marx wrote an anti-Jewish document called Zur Judenfrage. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So so uh, but that doesn't change the fact that communism is a manifestation of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. I reject that. He rejected Judaism for the very reasons that we support Judaism. He said Judaism stands for self-interest, the right to trade goods and services, the use of money as a means to do trade. These are things these are institutions that create freedom. These are you know, you have to. Look, put, I, I, I wrote I wrote Baron Metal to complete the, the, the big picture here. And the, the symbol at the heart of Baron Metal is uh, James Rothschild walking arm in arm with Heinrich Heine in Paris. And uh, Balzac, the novelist saying, voila, to l'esprit juif. So it's been uh, Trotsky and Jacob Schiff. You can't separate these two things. That is part of this revolutionary spirit. Sometimes they're bankers, sometimes they're revolutionaries but the bankers collaborate with the revolutionaries. So you got Lloyd Blankfein collaborating with uh, gay marriage, Black Lives Matter, George Soros contributing to Black Lives Matter. I'm just trying to give you the big picture here. Right. It's and all... also a lot of Christians. Look, the, uh, you know, Jew communism, whatever you want to call it, and it goes by different names, has always been a top-down organization. It's always been the most elite, the most successful, because... It is an imposition of man's control over the world and over other people. And that is the darker side of, of nature. Okay. That is the I, revolutionary idea. I, it's antithetical I, to Judaism. I understand. I understand what you're saying. If okay. We look at communism. There was every revolution leads to a civil war. And communism is no exception. The October Revolution led to a civil war between Stalin and Trotsky. Okay, Stalin, it's an Stalin, Stalin was not a Jew. Okay, Trotsky was a Jew. Trotsky was a Jew who hated Jews to some extent and saw himself as an anti-Jew. Okay, but that doesn't change the fact that Bolshevism was a Jewish political movement. They predominated. The fact, actually. Anyways, Mike, listen, I want to thank you for joining me. We're sort of toward the end of the hour. Great conversation as always. Uh, I really appreciate it. Your book is available at where and talk about your, your uh, magazine. What do you have coming up? Uh, we have, uh, you can get the book at fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. That's the only place where you will get the new second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. 600 pages of new material, two new historical chapters, and a lot of essays at the end of the sort that I've written over the past 10 years since the first edition came out. Excellent. All right. And and by the way, you were censored on Amazon, unfortunately. Right. Um, okay. Thanks to the ADL. Thank you, ADL.
okay. for doing that. Uh, all right. Look, I'm no fan of the ADL. Um, e. Michael Jones, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon, as always. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you.